0: Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we continued our coverage of Prosecutor Creighton Waters' direct examination of Ronnie Crosby a former law partner of the defendant. In this installment, we conclude our review of Waters' questioning and begin our look at Jim Griffin's cross-examination of the witness. That's all coming up right after the break.
1: Hold up!
0: It is the afternoon of February 7th, 2023, day 10 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, Prosecutor Creighton Waters was questioning Ronnie Crosby regarding the Murdochs' financial crimes against Peters, Murdoch, Parker, Eltroth, and Dietrich, or PMPED, a law firm in which he and the defendant were partners. Specifically, Mr. Crosby described the lead up to the moment that he was presented with evidence by his fellow partners that the defendant had fraudulently diverted funds away from the PMPED firm and their clients, and into bank accounts that he owned personally. As we begin today, Waters asks Mr. Crosby about his reaction to that evidence, and the actions taken by himself and the firm after discovering evidence of Alex Murdoch's misappropriation of funds what happened after that well they didn't tell me what was in it they, they let me review it on
2: my own and I uh, immediately said this is this is bad and my words then were that we have to terminate Alec he cannot no longer practice with us and that was within I don't know how many minutes but it was not a long period of time because the way Jeannie had it laid out it, it was clear what had happened and that this money had been stolen.
3: Did uh, any of the partners go to confront Alec with uh, this information that had been uncovered?
2: Um, Yes, there was a meeting uh, the following morning at at Lee's house. I did not attend. I did not need to attend. Um, I was still getting ready for trial. I'd already already decided where this was going. And and, um, they met and then we, uh, Danny and Randy, Alec's brother, went met with Alec. And what was your understanding of what the defendant said as a result of that? That he admitted and, and, and said that he was knew he was going to get caught at some point in time and admitted uh, to them uh, that he did it.
3: Ultimately, did the firm engage in a very extensive investigation to the, determine the extent... Of any alleged misappropriation that the defendant had done with related to client fee, or excuse me, uh, firm fees or client money?
2: Um, We did. We initially turned over what we had to uh, uh, state law enforcement, uh, and then, well, we immediately decided to hire an outside uh, auditor a forensic auditor to come in and, and, and look at our books to see if there was anything else. But parallel with that, we were uh, doing our own internal investigation into uh, his files. And was uh, Jeannie
3: second George your CFO, was she heavily involved in, in that review? She was the point
2: person um, uh, doing that with whatever support staff she needed under this, my supervision. and uh, uh, Mark and Lee's supervision.
3: And have you seen uh, spreadsheets that, you see that she's made and other documentation that's been put together and gathered by others in the firm uh, as that investigation went forward?
2: I'm very familiar with all of
3: it. And uh, are the results of those accurate as you've been able to review firm records and gather information?
2: The documents that were entered into evidence earlier today through Ms. Seconder are, are accurate.
3: At any point in time, whether June of 2021, or going back years, if you, as a partner in PMPD, had found out that the defendant was allegedly diverting money to an account in the name of a business, an account that he actually controlled, and then converting that to personal use client money, what would you have done?
2: If I had become aware of it, he would have been asked to resign, or I would have forced a vote, a vote, and he would have been Terminated under our uh, contract. What else, if anything, would you have done? I would have done the same thing we did. Would have turned it over to law enforcement and would have reported uh, to the South Carolina Bar because uh, because of it affected our our business and our trust account.
3: If at any point over the years you had found out that the defendant had been diverting fees that would properly do the firm and spending those for personal use and never accounting for them and not being truthful with firm members, what, if anything,
2: would you have done? He would have been asked to resign, or a vote would have been called, and he would have been terminated. All right. What else would you have done, if anything? Because that conduct would have been illegal, it would have been reported to uh, law enforcement, as well as the South Carolina Bar.
3: If at any point in time you had uncovered or had discovered information that the defendant was having checks issued from the firm trust account in the name of Palmetto State Bank and then having someone at the bank convert those into checks that he could use for personal
2: use, what, if anything, would you have done? Would have asked for his immediate resignation and or uh, forced a vote and he would have been terminated. His activities would have been reported to law enforcement as well as uh, any activities of anyone at the bank who was uh, complicit in this, uh, what I would call a money laundering scheme.
3: And in each one of those instances, would the firm have also engaged in a detailed review to determine the extent of any alleged misappropriation?
2: Well, absolutely, and, and, and I could only wish that one of those clients early on had brought that
0: something to our attention. So. Uh, we could have dealt with it years ago. With that, Creighton Waters concludes his direct examination of Ronnie Crosby.
1: Hold up.
0: Jim Griffin rises to begin his cross examination of Ronnie Crosby on behalf of Alex Murdoch. Good afternoon, Mr.
4: Crosby. Good afternoon, Mr. Griffin. Mr. Crosby, I was I was struck by a comment you made and, and just want to confirm it. You were informed by folks at the meeting when Alec was confronted about financial misdeeds. According to the reports you received, that Alex's response was he knew he was going to get caught at some point in time. Is that what what was reported to you?
2: That's that's what I recall.
4: He asked you to speak at eulogize Paul at, his, at Paul's funeral, right? He did, and I did. You very close to Paul, and Paul was a super guy, wasn't he? Yes, to both of those questions. You said that that Paul carried around a 300 blackout and a 12 gauge shotgun. Nelly Super Eagle, I believe you said?
2: That's my memory. And then, you know, obviously they had numerous guns, but I had seen Paul with those on multiple occasions.
4: If I showed you a Nelly's Super Eagle that's in the courtroom, would you be able to recognize it as Paul's or not? Or? I,
2: I don't know at this juncture I may.
0: I believe it was camouflaged. Jim Griffin retrieves a camouflaged rifle from an evidence box on the floor and holds it with the muzzle pointing towards the floor. Camouflaged super eagle. Trying kind to of not
4: point at anybody, but does this look like Paul's gun? I'll say
0: it looked like it. Will I say it was? I can't say that. Jim Griffin next pivots to questioning Mr. Crosby about his actions and observations immediately upon arriving at the Moselle Road property on the night of the murders.
4: Also, um, you, you testified that when you got to Moselle the night of the 7th, you went through the main entrance, and that's the entrance with, I guess, the brick facade or whatever, the brick gates opening up, that's the main entrance you went in?
2: Yes, there's a, a brick facade and then uh, I think they're metal, iron gates, okay. but they never open.
4: And then you, if you you go up and you would have gone straight to the house if, you, if you'd gone straight, but you turn right, and you said, you know, and there's a little roadway there, an old runway, and you were able to get back up to where the kennels were from that direction, correct?
2: That's correct. It's not far when you turn right, you feel right. A couple hundred yards maybe. And then, but
4: you said you were able to see shell casings, what you thought would be 223.
2: Where were they? The one, I don't, I don't think I saw everyone that, that was there. I remember seeing one, seems like in the driveway Closer to the road from Paul and Maggie's bodies. So were you able to get inside the, the, the
4: crime scene tape? I don't
2: know if there was crime scene tape up at that point in time. Okay. So
4: you were able, as you recall, just to walk up for Maggie and Paul's bodies covered at the time you got there? Yes. But you were able to get into the crime scene close enough where you could tell what you thought caliber of the shell case.
2: Right, and, and I I didn't walk from where I was parked there. I, I walked c- completely around the hangar and went over to talk to people I, I knew that there, the fire and rescue people, just to get what their assessment was. And I could see from where they were positioned. I could see, I wasn't like, I didn't get over it, but I could see from a distance. And I'm very familiar with, with with sure. firearms and I saw what I thought was a two twenty three casing. Okay.
4: And and you later learned, I guess, the next day on the eighth that it wasn't a two twenty three but a three hundred blackout, is that right?
2: Yes, and I, I can't for the life of me to tell you there was that point in time uh, there was some law enforcement out in the hangar and, and around and I just just asked the question and I, they corrected me,
4: and that um and and you started to assist any way you could, trying to find out who who could have done this, isn't that right jim i
2: I, I didn't that night i was try you know trying to get and we were starting to i don't know it was it was shot man, you know, but in the days following, we had a lot of conversation amongst uh my partners and I uh, uh about who could have done this and obviously we were theorizing on stuff and you know, with with very little information obviously, but we were trying to find out things, whether Paul had been in an argument with anyone or, you know, if anybody had I I don't know, it's just what you would naturally do, is ask questions.
0: Jim Griffin next asks Mr. Crosby about his personal investigation into the whereabouts of Paul Murdoch's truck
4: One of the things you went down to jimmy butler's you remember that i did now what's jimmy butler
2: uh jimmy butler's a, a business in Varnville that uh does mechanic work they sells trailers he sells portable buildings um used to sell cars uh but i had learned that paul had taken his truck there the friday before the murders right and and so the Friday before the murders,
4: Paul's truck and what was his normal truck? Was it F? It was an F one fifty. The a white F one fifty. White F one fifty. And you had understood that his white F one fifty was put in the shop at Jimmy Buck.
2: Yes, and I specifically was going to to see if uh, if Paul's guns were in his truck. And did you check the truck? I did. I looked inside of it, and I also got. Uh, I had learned that uh, the. A. Mr. Rowe was working for Alec at the time and had taken him over to pick him up for take, when he took his truck to drop off for repairs. And I asked uh, Mr. Butler to pull surveillance tape so I could see if Paul got his guns out of his truck while he was getting out of one vehicle into another.
4: And, and because you, it was Paul's habit to carry the guns in his truck, right?
2: Right, and I believe, actually, when I looked in there, there was still a pistol and some shotgun shells, that type of stuff in there, but I, there were, I didn't see any long guns. I didn't get inside of his truck and rummage around. I, I just looked.
4: And so you, you didn't observe any 300 blackout or any shotgun in Paul's truck at Jimmy Buck? Bob- Is that right? I did not. And then I think you also looked at videotape to see if Paul took guns out of his truck when he got back in. I guess Mr. Rowe picked him up. Is that right?
2: That's correct. And another one of uh, another pickup that Elliot had on the farm.
4: And you didn't see Paul removing any any guns from his truck when he got in the truck with Mr.
2: Rowe. Uh, that that was not evident on the video. And, um, and and I could see him getting out of one vehicle into to the other.
4: And you were um, you were down there on the morning of the eighth after Sled had released the crime scene. And When I say there, I'm talking about down at the kennels. Were you, were, you, were you not? Yes,
2: I was asked to go there by Randy's brother, Ella.
0: As Mr. Crosby responds to the next series of questions relating to his memory of the crime scene, Alex Murdoch rocks back and forth in his chair and appears to become emotional. I mean, I, I
4: don't want to be too grotesque at all, but just, were there still um, blood and biological material there at the scene? Yes. Okay. And, and did you notice that there were some still birdshot pellets in the feed room that had not been collected by the sled agent?
2: Yes. They were what appeared to me to be, we can pretty much tell what what they were, yeah, from looking at them. I believe they would have been a TSS type loon. Did you gather those up? You're not? Did I? You or anybody, you know, with you? Jim, I mean, Mr. Griffin, well, so call I, me, we, we know each other, so... I, please, tell me, Jim. This, that area in that room, while well, we could see them, it was so bad. Uh, we thought we were going to, at some point, clean it up, but it, it overwhelmed both my partner, Mark, and I. Well, we could see that, and we could see everything, all the other aftermath, we, we, I mean, we were getting... Biological material. I mean, it just couldn't be there. It was bad, you know, and it was it was overwhelming us. So, no, I did not try to collect evidence.
4: And the scene inside that feed room, I take it as something that still is etched in your mind's eye, memory. Yes. When you got there the first time, I I think you I believe you went up with to Mark Ball, and he was he was there.
2: He got there before you.
4: Maybe a few minutes.
2: We had already talked about. You know We're, that
4: it did it. Did it look to you and Mark like the crime scene was being preserved and carefully uh, keeping people off of areas that maybe they shouldn't be trampling on?
2: Well, it was my understanding that the crime scene had been released. So, well, I'm talking about 11
4: o'clock. I'm I'm sorry, I jumped back. 11 o'clock when you got there around 11 on the night of the 7th. When when you pulled up, as I understand, you walked around the, the, the shed, the workshop, and went to the back and maybe Mr. Ball was back there. I, I could have that wrong, but is that what happened?
2: Well, we, we were there. Um, I saw people working through the crime scene. You're kind of asking me for an opinion that, I, that I, I don't feel qualified to give because I assumed that right. whatever was going on was being done so would proceed you know, whatever procedures. But there were, there were, there were people in that, uh, you know, in the crime scene doing various things. Okay.
4: And I'm not asking you to give an opinion. That, I was just ask you if, if anyone expressed an opinion in your presence about they shouldn't be doing this or shouldn't be
2: doing that. I, I don't specifically recall.
4: Okay. Well, did at some point in time um, you and Mark and whoever else, were you all directed to go to the main residence at,
2: we were, and, and for the life of me, I can't tell you who told us to go. I can tell you it was at the time that they, the, the, whoever is the photographer for the crime scene, they were getting ready to start yep. you know, f- taking photographs, and it was stated that we're going to photograph the scene. Uh, y'all, y'all go to the house. We don't, you, know, you don't need to be in these photographs. Okay. And so who all went to the house?
4: best you can remember. I'm gonna,
2: uh, I know I did, I know Mark did, Austin Crosby, who's one of my partners, did, Danny Henderson did, Randy Murdoch did, John Marvin did, Ellick at some point did, and he may have been, I believe he was accompanied by some officers when he came. I think maybe Chris Chris Wilson may have. The others I'm positive of, but sure. there could have been a couple other. And had it looked to you like
4: anybody from law enforcement had searched the residence, inspected the residence, before you guys went in?
2: I don't know that I would know what it would look like if if it had been searched. It was my perception that it had not been searched yet. You mentioned at some point in time, Alec came up,
4: and maybe law enforcement were with him?
2: Mr. Griffin, my memory is that Alec came in... And at or about the same time, two agents came, and I remember them collecting his clothes is what stands out to me. One stood in a doorway or the foyer to the house. We were kind of in, in the living room and maybe the kitchen area. And then another uh, uh, agent, and, and I'm assuming it was sled, but it, you know, it was kind of blurry, and it happened pretty quickly. Uh, went maybe to the door of a bedroom while Alec was changing clothes, and then he brought his clothes out and and gave them to the agent who stood in the in the bed of the living room or foyer or whatever you want to call it.
4: And, and did the agent just open up a, a bag and Alec dumped his clothes in the
2: bag? Is that how you remember it? A paper bag? I do not know what the 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 composition of the bag was. It was a bag, and it seemed to me the agent was holding the bag out like open. Right, and that Alec kind of had his clothes in his fingers and just dropped them in is what my memory was and what that was, I only recall there being one bag and he dropped them in and it was like a pretty quick transaction
4: Clothes were not put on a hanger for sure that
2: right? No, Alec had them in his hands when he came out of the bedroom He he was in there long enough to take those
0: off and I think he
2: put back on another pair of shorts or something and shirt
0: With that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we conclude our review of Ronnie Crosby's testimony, and begin our look at the direct examination of gunshot forensics expert Megan Fletcher. Also, check out the Crime Story Podcast Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.